1: Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. This week, my guest is uh, Valentina Abona, who is the president of Marchese di Barolo. We met at the uh, Wine to Wine Think Tank event that uh, Stevie Kim and her team held in Verona in October. and I was really impressed not, not only with her and the things she had to say, but also the way she carried herself. It was very noble. And I think we're going to hear a little bit about that nobility in in a moment. So, Valentina, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Steve. It's very exciting to be here.
1: Uh, and as an American, we're kind of like, uh, we love the, the concept of uh, lords and ladies and dukes and earls and all, and don't know the, the relative uh, level of uh, Marchese. But could you, could you tell us a story of how that name came about and the history of the estate itself?
2: Well, I don't want to, i say, uh, get appropriate of a name, which is, not, uh, which is not mine, but the winery is called the Marchese di Barolo because it was the original estate of the Marquises of the town of Barolo. So this noble family that was reigning over um, the village and the region of Barolo back in the 1800s. The line ended with uh, Carlo Tancredi Falletti and Juliette Colbert, a French noblewoman that arrived in Barolo. Because of love. And my family bought it later in uh, 1929. So we started... Um, making wine, following the example of the Marquises, uh when they were still alive, and then uh, the um, uh, fourth generation in our family bought the state. So my family is among the historical producers in the town of Barolo, but we are not noble. <laughs> well,
1: thank you all for listening to this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I would say nobility and... Uh, uh, temper, which you mentioned, comes from the heritage of the winery and, and breathing this air and living here, allowed me to be so.
1: Okay, my, my apologies on that. Wait, actually, uh, the, the concept, the reason why I even mentioned that was uh, the concept of noble varietals. You know, the world kind of has these international varietals like Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Saint and so forth. But Nebbiolo, the grape of uh, Barolo, was never really part of or considered that. It's got this incredible history dating back to Thomas Jefferson, and you can fill us in on that. But it's only recently not only come into its own, but become one of the noble wines, noble varieties for sure in the world. So, can you take us back? You know, we'll understand how your family got involved in it, but kind of the history of the estate and the history of Barolo as a region, the types of wine that they produced and, and where Nebbiolo uh, and Barolo fit in today's world?
2: Well, today surely there is more awareness uh, about Nebbiolo and about the wines made from this noble grape. Uh, but it wasn't like this in the past. In fact, uh, when you mentioned uh, uh, Jefferson, who in the 1700s used to visit the region of Piedmont, which was not in Italy yet because Italy was not unified as a country at the time. That happened only hundreds of uh, more than 100 years later. Um, he used to describe the wine made out of Nebbiolo, uh, sparkling as a champagne, um, austere as a Bordeaux, and uh, sweet as a Madeira. So, three elements, three characteristics, modern elements, which are very much in contrast one with the other. I can't even imagine of a wine like that made today. And this was uh, the result of a non-completed fermentation of the wine that was made in the region. Because, of course, uh, here in the north, temperatures get quite um, uh, cool in winter time. So our guess is that with the arrival of winter, Fermentation uh, uh, stopped without ending because the temperature became too low to allow fermentation, and then restarted again after bottling in springtime. So uh, probably the result was this juice that Jefferson uh, used to enjoy and who uh, and which he was very curious about. In fact, he asked to send some uh, bottles when he went back to United States. Bottles which never made it to the America because during the during the transportation they exploded, and here is our proof of the uh, non stability of the wine and uh, the uh, fermentation which restarted eventually with a rise of temperatures. Things changed only in the 1800s thanks to Juliette Colbert, a French noble woman. She was noble for real. She was part of the um, family. Of uh, Colbert, the finance minister of the king's son, and Juliette fell in love with Carlo Tancredi Falletti, the last Marquis of Barolo, who was at that time in the um, last uh, last years of the uh, 1700s and beginning of the 1800s, the Cancellano di Corte, so the assistant to Napoleon. And uh, in one of the events uh, at the Royal Court, Juliette met Carlo Tancredi. And after getting married, she followed him in Barolo. This uh, place who was uh, to her completely, it, it was a total surprise to her. When she arrived in Barolo, she was in fact uh, fascinated about how rural it still was. There were no paved roads. And uh, even though The castle, which is still here today, was their home. The situation was not the same that she she was used to in France. Um, Yet the wine which they used to make in the region made her very curious. And she did all of what she could in order to improve it and to make a real wine out of this grape, Nebbiolo, which was locally from the area. Uh, she introduced for the first time barrels, barrels which, by the way, we still use today at the winery and they date back to the 1800s, but still work perfectly for their original purpose, uh, allowing the wine to finish the, com- the fermentation and finally become still dry and so preserve that austerity, which always distinguished wines made out of Nembiolo grapes. And Juliette had the intuition of making, for the first time, excavating underground cellars so that the temperature down was more stable compared to the open air, where they used to make wine prior to her arrival. And in this way, she was able to make a wine which became the symbol of this region and uh, of our lands. Wine that she named Barolo after, the town where she moved with uh, with her husband and in which she used to live. And this wine became so uh, iconic for the, for the region that even the king of Savoy, who was living in Turin, of course, that was the capital of the region and the city which later became the first uh, uh, capital of Italy as the Savoy family became the first uh, um, kingdom. Of Italy uh, was so curious about this wine that asked for some uh, some of it uh, as Juliette. And she sent three hundred and twenty-five barrels, uh, one for each day of the year for the king, unless the 40 days of length, because she was very Catholic, so only counted the drinking days for the king. But since then, Baral is known not just as the King of Wine, but also the wine for kings.
1: And the name Nebbiolo, it's a familiar word in a lot of Romance languages relating to mist. How did you get that name?
2: Well, mist in Italian is nebbia. So surely uh, there is a connection. And this is due to the fact that Nebbiolo is the latest uh, grape uh, to be picked. So it used to be picked with the first fox. And also because uh, there is the skin of Nebbiolo is never clear. There is a sort of waxy bloom on it. Uh, which can um, make it somehow foggy. In Italian, we say that the grape itself is nebulosa. So nebbiolo with the both nebbia between the hills and the nebbia on top of it um, justifies the, the name of the grape.
1: Much like uh, Brunello is little brown one, and, and ergo the name.
2: Yes, something like that.
1: But the wine it produces is something unique. And I, I, I had a, an experience with it that I imagine shared with everyone who's ever had Barolo, which is the first time you taste it. You go, wow, never tasted anything like that. Now, it was a long time mm-hmm. ago for me, but I do remember the experience. And now it, Nebbiolo the grape, Barolo the wine, and all of the famous producers, your company included, are. Considered at the top of, of of the stack, if you will, uh, of world wines and uh, are collected and all that kind of stuff. How does that compare and contrast with wines that people? can drink every day. What kind of production do you have and who's drinking it? And how accessible are the wines, both in terms of being able to purchase and also appreciate A lot of questions. I realize that.
2: A lot of questions, but they're all interesting questions because I think that today we are living a special moment for what concerns uh, uh, important wines and noble wines. Uh, First of all, there is, as we were saying, more awareness. So people have the opportunity of understanding better both the varietal and the wines made out of this varietal. A varietal Nebbiolo, which is very sensitive to the place in which it is grown. Let's uh, talk about terroir because terroir is what makes every Nebbiolo wine special. In fact, uh, we can't even speak about one Barolo, but we speak about Barolo in general as a region. It has so many different shades uh, just in this little corner of the world. Uh, If we move just a few kilometers and we uh, go in Barbaresco or in Roero, we would have different expression of the same grape, which are even called, I mean, the wine made of the same grape is even called in a different way. So, of course, these are the elements that impact uh, on the expression that the wine has and that makes it more or less accessible in terms of uh, um, importance and austerity and also preferences. So on sandier soil, I would say that Nebbiolo shows more freshness, more accessibility, while on more compact and stony ones in uh, places maybe where there is a more austere to then we would have more closed uh, long-lasting and severe vertical expressions of it. So the accessibility of the wine itself depends on the on the tour, so on where and when, so the vintage in which the, um, the grapes are picked, so the vintage of the harvest. And uh, of course, uh, this is very personal. It changes from person to person. But the more um, we study about these wines, the more we taste them, the more we have the opportunity of drinking them, then the more we will become familiar with them and they will become more accessible.
1: Fair enough.
2: (laughs) (laughs) In terms of quantity, however, Varola is a very tiny area. There are just around 2,000 hectares on the vine, uh, which translates into 14 million bottles for the whole world in one year. More or less. So, of course, it is a rare wine to be found. There is not so many. uh, The production is so tiny that, of course, uh, it's not super accessible in this sense. But in terms of, uh, uh, I mean, besides the quantity, I would say that we can find occasions in which Barolo can be um, enjoyed more um, more than what it was used before today we have the opportunity of addressing this austerity which is typical of the grape so the tannins and the acidity which we were mentioning earlier and address it in a way that we can make wine which are understandable and pleasant already in this, their first years of youth so just as any wine i think that the evolution that that we that we have and the opportunities that we have today both in terms of uh, um, vineyard management and winemaking allow us to have wines which are more accessible, even in the first years of youth, compared to how it was before. So the opportunities of enjoying Barolo, of enjoying, generally speaking, Nebbiolo made wines are definitely greater today than before because of the greater experience, because of the greater knowledge and because of the also of the uh, different recipes which we can make today, which earlier were not even uh, uh, known or people were just uh, more locally eating. So we can have more occasions for our important noble wines nowadays.
3: Head to ItalianWinePodcast.com from July 1st to the 31st and click the link. We thank you and back to the show.
1: So uh, two points on that. One, uh, difficult, grape to work with, very sensitive to its location. That makes it similar in some uh, contexts to Pinot Noir. And yet we've seen a dramatic uh, growth and almost shift of Pinot Noir production big in Oregon and Washington in the United States. Who would have ever thought that? I mean, i traveled to those states back when they were just growing wheat in those fields, in the rolling hills, and now there's vineyards in the middle of them, making really great wine. Why is Nebbiolo not grown anywhere else?
2: Well, we do have uh, uh, expressions of Nebbiolo, of course, from Piemont, not just from Barolo, but generally speaking, also from uh, the uh, north of Piemonte. So Gemme, Gattinara, Lestona, Bramaterra, these are all uh, expressions of Nebbiolo from the north of, uh, of Piemont. We have some in uh, Lombardy, in Valtellina specifically, but the clone is already different and it's called the Uh So the local uh, expression of Nebbiolo there is different from the one that we have here. We can find a little bit in uh, Valle d'Aosta and also in Sardinia. Not many people know this. Uh, in Sardinia, there is uh, some, um, uh, some Nebbiolo on the Colli dell'Imbara. And the, my guess is that Probably the grape used to travel with the king of Savoy, who was the king of both Piedmont and Sardinia. So he brought with him some. Outside of Italy, uh, little nebbiolos grown in Mexico. Some in, I, I had some Nebbiolo from Australia, uh, also from California, actually. I should say, however, that the expressions are so particular and so different from the ones that we're used to here in the south of piemont because of the terroir of all these uh, different places in mexico for example the expression of nebbiolo tends to be very salty because of the roots going down close to the to the sea uh, to the ocean so because of this uh, peculiarity of nebbiolo being so sensitive to the terroir is more difficult to to find it grown in other places rather than the one in which it became very famous.
1: Okay, so you're not at risk of um, uh, dealing with issues like the people from Prosecco uh, did and having to change the varietal name and it being grown in a lot of different areas and made in a way that is uh, repeatable, Sharmat Polk. So let's uh, get into the business side of, uh, of the issue. By nature then, because of not just the price but the limited production, you, uh, Barolo in general, and your wines, I believe, are very on-premise oriented, have been. Now we're living in a world of COVID, which is you know, completely decimated, the, the on-premise business, bars and restaurants. How have you guys reacted to it? And your importer is Frederick Wildman, I believe.
2: Yes. Sir. How
1: are you guys dealing with, with COVID? Well, COVID are you?
2: We still are, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Very much right. We thought we were at the end of this, but it doesn't seem like that. Uh, Luckily, however, even though business, of course, on-premise business has suffered a lot, uh, I think that the reasons uh, behind the success that we still had uh, in the past months, uh, is um, there are many, many reasons. Uh, First of all, I should say the curiosity. Of the of wine lovers and uh, and connoisseurs, which finally had more time of studying about it, and they were they were as anyone. We were all stuck at home, so we could only follow our passions in order to forget what the craziness that was outside. And uh, for sure, for many people, this translated into greater studies about wines. I personally carried out a lot of virtual tastings and uh, this uh, long distance seminars. Uh, in which we were discovering the peculiarities of Nebbiolo from the different areas, having different single vineyard Barolo in front of us from the same vintage, maybe even from the same town. So to really discover what terroir means and how many expressions we can find from such a small area. So this extra time that we had at disposal could translate into this greater knowledge uh, which did they allow us to have even a greater public compared to before?
1: Well, that's a that's great, but that's a reach. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the the joke in the industry is I, mean, I get asked this all the time. I'm sure you do too. What's the best bottle of wine? And the answer is the one I just sold. Okay, we're in a, a commercial world where money has to be transferred, and if people aren't drinking it, there it becomes a challenge. A lot of the bigger players. Are doing well because they've shifted towards uh, lower priced wines necessarily or more mass market oriented wines. But when you've got a limited production of a high end wine, that's got to be a challenge. One of the areas I see, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but uh, just kind of to move this along, is uh, a shift in uh, the where and how people buy wines. So while on-premise might be down, we're seeing e-commerce grow so dramatically. And all of a sudden, it's less of an issue of what's on the shelf than what it is you want or what you're looking for. So we think about e-commerce as the infinite aisle, if you will, the, the multitude.
2: And this is exactly the point that I was oh, okay, touching before. So People are more aware today, so they have more, they're more cautious about what they want to drink. And even though I agree with you that, generally speaking, because of the difficult moment that we are all facing, you know, wines which are cheaper should be growing more. We experience exactly the opposite. So we've been seeing a greater performance of our single vineyard Barolo rather than the everyday Barbera and Dolcetto. Well,
1: everyday. For you guys, everyday Barbera and Dolcetto, well, maybe. Well, I used to work for the the company that imported Choretto wines. And I learned everything I know about Barolo from Philip Bellardino. You probably knew him. He was a mentor of mine. He passed away a few years ago, but he would tell stories. And use Italian so that we understood what like Ricco meant and so forth and where it was on, on the hillsides and so forth. And one of the wines that I discovered that I fell in love with that is really hard to sell in the U.S. we're finding is Arnais. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And it's more Lange, right? That's kind of the, the region where it's grown?
2: Well, Arnais actually is uh, find its home in Roero, which is just on the other side of the Tanaro River. So... Uh, this uh, major region of the south of Piemont is divided in Lange and Roero from the Tanaro. On um, uh, one side, uh, red wines are made mostly, on the, which is Lange, so the region in which Barolo and Barbaresco uh, are located. On the other side, so in the uh, north-west um, of the river, In Roero is where specifically white varietal and Arnaise, even more specifically, are grown. If we can divide a little bit in uh, in two, we can say in Roero, for sure, Arnaise, in Di mostly Nebbiolo and Barbera even though there are great expressions of nebbiolo uh, in Roero as well, I would say that what identifies the most Roero is surely Arnaise. Arnaise, which is also difficult to pronounce. So I understand that it, this can be, a, um, how can I can say, uh, one of the reasons why it is not so of appeal. It's not
1: not as hard as Gruner Liener.
2: <laughs> so, as I mentioned, I always redimension everything to Piemont. So it's, uh, among all of our grapes, for sure, Arnaise is a little bit complicated. But this is the, how can I say, is the DNA of the grape. Arnaise in our dialect means little rascal because it was one of the most challenging varietals to be to be grown. In fact, Arnaise, until 40 years ago or so, was just grown in order to, how can I say, attract uh, birds and animals, insects, uh, to bite on that grape and allow the other grapes uh, to be grown. But then it became the icon of the, um, of the region of Roero. So it's an important uh, white um, wine made of an important uh, white varietal, uh, which has a very thick skin, which allows a sort of creaminess into the wine. So even though usually is a non-oaked Um, white wine it stands out for its uh, complexity so probably is is the unexpected white wine and this is one this can be the reason why it's not so
1: That could be a bad thing yeah
2: i mean you have to pay a little bit of attention before appreciating
1: uh, one of my favorite restaurants is E truly in New York. It was around the corner from my office there on 26th Street.
2: I think it's 26th Street,
1: and they have a great rabbit dish there. I forget what they call it, but that with
2: Arnaise. perfect.
1: Is, is, yeah, it's spectacular. But uh, normally, I would think of you know getting a, a Barolo Barbaresco or something from the north. So uh, it, it's an interesting one. Okay, so there's a new generation running the winery. You and your brother. You've been a very visible part of it. What is the future of the winery? Where are you guys going? And what are some of the new projects that you're working on uh, that we can look forward to enjoying here in the United States?
2: Well, it's very exciting to have my brother on board. Uh, David joined uh, officially at the winery last year, and he's in charge of all the uh, vineyard management, uh, even though unofficially he's been working with us since ever. Both my brother and I, since we were little, uh, we used to uh, help mom and dad with everything that we could do, even because we were forced by our parents to assist them. So we had really no choice. (laughs) But the reality is that we both enjoy a lot what we're doing. We have two very different uh, um, personalities and therefore approaches to the business. David, as I mentioned, is the head behind things. He's the hands and uh, all of the heart in the vineyards and in the cellar. While I take mostly care of uh, sales and uh, communication, marketing, so we're very complementary in this. Of course, mom and dad are still a very important presence uh, at the winery, and uh, all together, I would say that we that we make a good team. And uh, this is another nice aspect, if I can say, of um of COVID, which allowed us to be together yeah. than what we used to. As uh, before, we were always gone. And um, the, the ideas and the enthusiasm for the years to come is even more now. We bought uh, um, a little estate in Barbaresco, which is uh, Davide's, uh, Davide's uh, yeah. jewel. Yeah. And uh, he will show us all of the potential of a Rio Sordo. Rio Sordo is one of the most famous uh, vineyards and appellation within the Barbaresco area. And the idea is for him to uh, test and uh, um, uh, and, and show himself through that wine specifically while continuing, of course, to to maintain and uh, preserve all the history and the tradition at Marquis di Barolo.
1: So one of the other, you you also produce, we mentioned earlier, Barbera and Dolcetto, I believe, right? How important is that in your export business? I love the wines, but boy, it's really hard to find. But Barbera's everyday drinking wine is wonderful. I know you do it in Italy, but nobody does it here. Why?
2: You know our, our data says that um, our barbera does quite well in the United States so this uh, I was wrong.
1: that's good to hear.
2: <laughs> it's different from for anyone I believe. but I would say that uh, because of the accessibility of the grape barbera but also of dolcetto grape, uh, these are wines that you can enjoy on a more daily basis. Also, the fact that they're produced in larger quantities compared to Nebbiolo <laughs> allows greater accessibility. In fact, Barbera is the most widely grown grape here in uh, in Piemont. Despite the fact Nebbiolo is more famous, surely Barbera is produced in larger quantities. And Barbera too can be quite sensitive to the turborum which is grown. So mainly we have free expressions of it. Um, most uh, dear to one as it is the most uh, uh, local production for us is Barbera d'Alba and uh, uh, specifically our Barbera d'Alba Rubei, it is made being, with a little blend of uh, of Nebbiolo which probably makes it a little bit more austere and a little bit closer to to our Nebbiolo wines. So it's um, probably because of this uh, personality of the wine itself is more easy to be enjoyed in different situations. It makes it very versatile.
1: So, what kind of uh, activity do you guys have planned for the U.S.? Are you going to be uh, traveling to the U.S.? I know we're recording this at uh, kind of the beginning of January, when things are looking pretty bleak. Hopefully, we will pass this uh, crest by the time we come back. Um, Are you planning on coming to the U.S.? Will you be doing uh, participating in promotions here and so?
2: I hope so. (laughs) I really hope so because I used to travel to United States at least uh, every other month until. 2020, of course, and I'm missing coming to uh, the different states of the United States now. My plan for next month, so end of um, February, is to be in Miami for the Sobe. Uh, we have very nice uh, uh, program there with a little vertical also. Um, let's hope that will take place and let's hope to see each other overseas uh, in, uh, in different parts of the states. I take
1: that the same way in, in Italy. But one last point, a question I would ask. You went to Wine to Wine. Tell me what you think about that event. How much of have, uh, have you participated in the past? I don't remember meeting you at, at earlier ones, but I'm, it doesn't mean you weren't there. What do you think about it? As as an event and how valuable it is to you as a producer.
2: Well, I always thought that wine to wine was one of the most interesting events and activities in the wine industry in Italy because it always gave the opportunity of uh, meeting people who are on on your same page, from which you can learn a lot from. So the way it is, um, uh, it has always been programmed with lectures uh, before in presence, now virtual or uh, half and half as it was this year has always been uh, really interesting and stimulating. And also the fact that. I feel like we are all uh, at the same level somehow, so there is very short distance between who is giving lecture and who is listening. Oh, I
1: get that a hundred percent it it's it, yeah it's like it's like being in college again. It's like you're all in one place together and all at the same level, hungry to learn, but having something to contribute there
2: to learn yeah. everyone and there is so much enthusiasm and uh i I miss when we were there in presence because it was even more. Um, you know, like being, uh, as you said, in college during the break. And it was just yeah. beautiful, beautiful. And it's very enriching.
1: We're coming to the end of our time here. I'm going to surprise you with a question that I end all my interviews with Is is there a, a big takeaway from the conversation that you've had? Is there something that most of the people who are listening to the show are in the US trade, also some in the UK? It's not Italian producers, it's it's Americans. So, distributors, importers, salespeople, and whoever else is out there listening, send me an email. Let me know who you are. It'd be great to hear from you. Steve at bevologyinc.com. But in any case, thinking about big takeaways, is, is there anything that we've talked about that you think is particularly useful or helpful for anyone? who would, might be listening uh, to this broadcast that they can put to use immediately <laughs> in terms of in the business of international wine?
2: Well, I think that just, you know, every time we listen to other people living the same uh, situation in which we all are and, uh, um, and making our confrontation with someone else in the business is always, a, um, I would say, is always a great lesson. For, for each one of us. And uh, I think that the positivity with uh, which we mm, faced all this COVID situation can be a good uh, a good lesson. Um, as I mentioned, uh, my way to get out of this was to uh, do uh, virtual tastings and to meet constantly, of course, virtually with many people. But I think that the greatest lesson for all of us, and for me too, is that the power of um, of wine, the enthusiasm that is behind wine really allow us to travel constantly. We can be physically in one place, but with rather imagination. And thanks to a glass of wine, we can be anywhere we want in the world. And uh, this enthusiasm was never let us down. So I'm sure that with a great glass of wine, we can face every situation. And I really hope to be able to cheer in person soon with most of the people who are listening to us today.
1: Okay, so to put that into American commercial speak, drink all you want, we'll make more. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole that from an old cereal, com- or no, Lay's potato chip commercial. Anyway, this is Steve Ray. Uh, thank you all for listening to uh, the Italian wine podcast today, get U.S. market ready with Italian wine people. Thank you to <laughs> Valentina for sharing her time with me today. It was great to meet you in Italy. And I, wow. I hope we'll have the chance to meet again soon, like at uh, uh, then Italy coming up and that the world will, if not return to normal, that we'll be able to recommence all of the things we do that that make a career in the wine industry so valuable. So thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at International.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com.